morning, everyone. These last uh, several weeks, we've been talking about uh, various aspects of theology, various aspects of truth about God that we learn from his word, and it's, uh, I think it's been a very healthy thing, it's been a very encouraging thing. I was saying we, we've uh, spent the last several weeks talking about various aspects of theology, particularly theology proper or theology about God himself, and I think it's been a very helpful thing, it's been a very encouraging thing for all of us. We've, uh, we've grown in our understanding, it's been very worshipful for me. I, I find, um, I, I've said this before, that in, in my earlier years, I thought theology was kind of dry, it was something to debate about, and I wasn't really into debate, so I didn't really want to study it that much, though I went and got a degree in it. Don't, don't ask me why, but in later years, as I've lived life and lived life with God, I've come to understand how worshipful theology can be because it lifts you to a proper understanding of who God is, and that's, uh, that is extremely, well, it causes worship. It brings us to a place where we realize what he is really like, who he really is. And so these last several weeks, we've looked at, at God's self-existence. That's a, that's a unique thing, something unique to God, and it's powerful. We've looked at the fact that he's the great three in one, and we wrestled with that and tried to understand that and saw that Scripture says it. Now, I can't really get it into my head, but it's true. He's the three in one. We looked at his holiness. We rejoiced in his sovereignty the fact that God is actually in control of all of this. And so for weeks we've been struck by God's awesome beauty, by his glory. And then this week we kind of start getting into a little bit of the bad news of this picture. We start talking about something dark, kind of for the first time in this study. If you'll, you'll look at the, the uh, title on your notes that you have there that you got in your bulletin, it's the sovereignty of God in salvation. That, of course, is outstanding news. The implication or the, the given in that is that we are in need of salvation. And so today is the first time, really, we begin to talk about man um, to any great degree, and we start introducing bad news into all of this good news that we've been talking about. So I just wanted to warn you ahead of time, we're going to go through some murky waters. Okay, But bear with me, because it doesn't end there. This morning won't even end there, okay? But bear with me. We are going to go through and we're going to look at a little bit of what man is like, and then we'll climb out the other side and we'll see the, the glories of what God has done in an even uh, clearer aspect. It'll be magnified. It'll be made greater because we've gone through those dark waters of the truth about man from Scripture. All right, everybody with me? All right, that's what we're going to do. To begin with, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we... Uh, have sung this morning about your um, wonderful work in saving us, about the amazing grace that you pour out on us, about how uh, merciful and glorious you are, and, and your work in our lives is amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's eye-opening. It, it, it brings us, uh, really, it raises us up to the heavens and brings us to our knees at the same time, and, uh, and that's what we're dealing with today as we talk about the topic of your sovereignty and salvation. And so, Lord, this morning, I, I pray that you would have your way here. I pray that you would uh, give me words to say and help us uh, corporately to, uh, to be sensitive to your spirit, to pay attention to your, your word and what you say, that we would understand what is written here, what you intend to tell us about salvation and your involvement, your sovereignty in that situation. So, Lord, we, we need you this morning. This is a, this is a delicate subject, and it's, it's key 
It is key to what we are doing here on earth. So we ask for your work. Holy Spirit, have your way this morning. We give you our time. Help us to submit to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin by opening up to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, where we're going to learn that man is depraved. Man is depraved. That's probably not news to you, but man is depraved. Again, we're in Romans chapter 3. Now, I want to clarify, before we even start reading here, what I mean by depravity, or when you hear that about a man being totally depraved, I want to, I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that man is as bad as he could be, and he does everything possibly wrong that he could possibly do. That's not what I mean by the fact that man is totally depraved, The term totally depraved refers to the fact that the corruption of sin in our lives has reached into absolutely all areas of our being. It's seeped into all areas of our being. It's like a little bit of black ink put into a cup of water, right? It seeps everywhere. It's going everywhere. That's what I mean by totally depraved. There is no aspect of mankind that is not influenced tainted, touched, darkened in some way by sin. That's what I mean by totally depraved. Throughout, thoroughly, in every aspect, not to the ultimate degree. That's, that's not what I mean by totally depraved. We see a clear and a thorough picture of man's depravity in Romans 3. I'm going to read uh, verses 9 through 18. 9, just to get the beginning of the paragraph there. We have Paul writing. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then just jump down and look at verse 23. This isn't news to you either. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man is depraved. First of all, he's depraved in his understanding. Depraved in his understanding. Verse 11, the first part of it, no one understands. No one understands. Our minds in the original state, if you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, the mind was perfectly functioning the way it was supposed to be. If you don't believe me, just just try to come up with names for thousands of animals, but you don't get to use any name you've ever heard. You have to come up with new ones and come up with more new ones. And they keep coming. You've got to come up with more names. So his mind was functioning the way it should function. But we aren't really here talking about brain power as in cognitive ability per se. We're talking about understanding and rightly prioritizing important spiritual 
issues. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But there's a darkening that's gone on. Since the fall, there's been a darkening that's gone on. And he, Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 that uh, we're not able, natural man is not able to discern the things of the Spirit of God. They can't do that. The way he says it here is no one understands. Natural man without the work of the Spirit of God does not and cannot think rightly and prioritize rightly and understand rightly about God. In Ephesians 4, he uses similar language. He talks about us being darkened in understanding. That's the state of natural man. Natural man is depraved in his understanding. He's also depraved in his will. Look at the second half of verse 11 there. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. I think this may be one of the most painful truths that we're going to talk about this morning regarding the fallenness of man. The great reformer Martin Luther referred to this as the bondage of the will, that our will is bound to seek ourself. It's turned inward upon us so that we seek our own good in everything that we do, and it keeps us from seeking after God himself. Turn over to Romans 8. Just uh, We're going to read a couple of verses there in Romans 8. Just a couple of pages to your right. Starting in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So man's depravity has affected his will, his volition, his power of choice. That mean, This means that the natural man fallen and without the spirit of God living in him, without the Spirit of God working in him, will not choose to submit himself to God. He will not choose to submit himself to God. In fact, his will is so strongly bent against choosing God, submitting to God, that he actually can't make that choice. This uh, this subject of man's fallen will is a, an extremely important one. It's complex. Uh, and it's central to what we're talking about. So we're going to come back to it later in our second point. But for now, we're going to move on. Man is depraved in both his understanding and he's depraved in his will. More than that, we don't have to look very far to see that he's also depraved in his actions. He's depraved in his actions. Look at just a couple of verses we have here. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And down to verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. These are the actions of fallen man. 
These are the actions of man in his natural state, apart from the working of the Spirit of God inside of him. We already quoted Romans 3.23 that said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8, verse 46 says, There is no one who does not sin. So the Old Testament talks about that too. Man's sin and fallenness affects more than just the occasional act of sin or outworking of sin. Romans 14.23 goes deeper, sheds more light on this subject and says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Think about that. Whatever is not from faith is sin. You talk about a blanket statement. That's a big statement. It's just not, not just identifying lying is sin. Thievery is sin. This is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's huge. The point is that natural man who does not submit himself to God and doesn't, uh, and, and so doesn't have a proper God-honoring faith, is not able, is not able to do anything that is not considered sin. Because anything not from faith is sin. Any action taken by natural man is, by definition, taken without proper faith and is therefore sin. Dark, right? This is heavy stuff. And this is the way we were all born. This is what we were all born into. All right, so I can hear in your mind, but my neighbor, who's not a Christian, is a great guy. And he does all these things. He helps people. He gives of his time. He does all these things, right? How can that be sin? How is it possible for that to be sin? Well, think of it like this. Imagine you, you uh, sent your child outside to mow the grass so that uh, later on you could play baseball out there or something. Okay, and so you, you, you send him out to mow the grass, and he says, okay, no problem. And then the time comes to do it, you don't want to do it. Comes back inside and says, I'm not doing it, Dad. I don't want to do that. And so you push a little bit more, remind him, hey, we're going to play baseball later. It needs to be mowed. I asked you to mow it, so go mow it. You said you were going to do it. And he says, no, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to be involved. All right? Well, the time comes to play baseball, and all of a sudden you see your son out there mowing the lawn real quick. Right? Not because he wanted to obey you. Not out of, a, out of a desire to honor you in obeying what, what you had said to do. Not out of a desire to honor the Lord by obeying his parents. But just because he wanted that benefit. He wanted to play baseball. So he's out there grumpy and mowing as fast as he can, not doing a great job getting it done. Did he obey you? No. Yeah, he did the action. He did the action, but he did not obey you from the heart. That's a little bit, that's kind of a picture of what's going on with the natural man in any good thing that's done. Martin Luther would say that his will is bent on himself. It's his own desire. I really wanted to play baseball. I couldn't care less that my dad said I had to do it I, and that I told him I was going to do it. That's not why I'm doing it. I just want to play baseball here, so I'm mowing the lawn. There's something bent selfish about that. Everything that is not from faith is sin. So man is depraved in his actions. Our passage goes on to tell us that he's also depraved in his heart. Look at verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, I think it's worth noting in this relatively short passage, how many statements are made about the way people talk. I mean, there aren't that many verses here. There aren't that many statements made. And we've got several of them that are about the way we speak. It's because it's powerful. 
What we say is powerful. And more than that, if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 18, he says, what comes out of the mouth, what we say, proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil deeds and sexual immorality and fornications and lying. And that all comes right out of here. That's what comes out of here. And so when, when he's pointing out here all these things that are said, that are spoken, ways we sin with our mouth, Jesus is saying that's just an, an, a verbal expression of what's already in your heart. Expression of what's already in your heart. He's depraved in his heart as well. In a word, natural man, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, has no fear of God. He has no fear of God. This is this, the way Paul summarizes it in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the bottom line for the natural unsaved man. There's nothing in him that is inclined to submit to God, either in his understanding or in his will or in his actions or in his heart. And this is the state that we were all born into. This is the way we were all born. Man is depraved. An enormous consequence of that depravity is that man is also unable. He's unable. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to move away from this passage. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Man is unable. Ephesians chapter 2, also written by Paul. I'm just going to read the first three verses of that chapter. Paul, speaking to Christians in Ephesus, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Man is unable, first of all, because he's dead. Because he's dead. Look how he starts verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. God had told Adam and Eve in the garden what the consequence would be if they disobeyed. They only had one rule. Don't eat from this tree. Broke that rule. And he said, if you break that rule, you'll surely die. Right? So they ate. And they died. They paid the price, the penalty of death. And so do we. We pay the same one. Every one of us was, in a certain sense, born dead. Born spiritually dead. Where this point hits home in our discussion is that dead men are unable to make choices. They're unable to make choices. Of course, everyone makes choices every single day. Every one of us. You look around, you observe in your own life, we see that choices are made every single day. Of course, we have the capacity to make choices. But what's being talked about here is our ability to move towards God, or as he said in Romans 3, to seek God, to seek him out. I think this, this can be uh, illustrated for us a little bit if we remember back to John chapter 11 and the death of Lazarus. He's died, he's a friend of Jesus, he's a dear friend of Jesus, he's been in the grave four days. He's dead. He's really dead. 
How able is he to respond to anything? When Jesus comes and says, Lazarus, come forth. Is it like me saying, Bill, stand up? Not at all. Not at all. Lazarus had zero ability to make any choice, to make any decision. It was the speech. It was the word, the command of Jesus when he said, Lazarus, come forth, that brought him forth. It was Jesus' command that caused life. It wasn't that Lazarus was sitting there, hey, I hear Jesus approaching. Hey, it sounds like his foot's I hear him chatting out there with my sisters. Lazarus, come forth. Eh. Okay, Jesus, I will. That is not the way it worked. He was dead. He was unable to make any choice. And the Savior came and he spoke and he said, Lazarus, come out. And life was breathed into him. He stood up and he came out. That's a little bit of the picture of what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead. We were born dead. We were born unable, like Lazarus was unable. Now, there's a little bit of a a subtle nuance. Excuse me. There's a little bit of a subtle nuance here as we talk about ability. Because we can look and see that we have ability to make choices all the time. We can do all kinds of things. And am I saying here that uh, man does not have the organ, let's say, to make the choice to follow God? If he's unable, then how can God still hold him accountable for his sins if he actually is unable? I think it's important, it's helpful for us to think about it in two kinds of terms. There is a sense in which man is naturally able, a sphere called natural ability, and a sphere called moral ability. Natural ability can be illustrated like this. No matter how much I wanted to, I could not jump and touch the ceiling right here. No matter how much I wanted to. I could build a thing and jump off it, or I could you know, build a jet pack and fly up there. But I could not use my natural faculties and make the leap to touch that. Just not going to happen. Michael Jordan couldn't do that. Okay, It is not possible for a man to do that. We do not contain those natural faculties to be able to do that. Okay, So something is hindering me. Something hinders me, and that's that my mechanics don't work right. I can't do that. Jump to the moon. No. No matter how much I wanted to, I couldn't do that, right? Natural ability. I do not have the capability to make that happen. All right. Let's move over here and think about moral ability. Moral ability means the ability to make choices, to make moral decisions. Okay, And I think we can illustrate this by thinking about someone who is a kleptomaniac, someone who steals all the time, almost unconsciously, picking people's pocket. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. I've never been a klepto or really even known one, I don't think. I don't think. But just taking stuff, just chronic shoplifters, just see it, take it. It's just a, you know, they just do that, right? That's just what they do. That's that's what they want to do. Now, it's possible, of course, to be a chronic shoplifter such that you end up in prison. In not just jail, short term, but in prison. And why do we put people like that in prison? Anyone who does anything always, like a serial killer or like, 
you know, someone who steals cars at every, every opportunity or whatever, someone who does that all the time, they really, that's what they want to do. And we put them in prison because we realize about them, they will always go back and do that. They do not have the moral ability to choose not to do that. They love it. And when they weigh in the scales, steal this thing, oh, that's really great, I love stealing that thing. Or don't steal it, do the right thing, don't get in trouble. Well, this isn't super heavy. This one is awesome. And so the, the this little weak inclination over here gets chucked. So we would say morally they are unable. Are they naturally able to choose not to steal that thing? Absolutely. I choose not to steal that thing all the time. You choose not to steal that thing all the time. They have the natural ability. Their mechanics aren't broken. They could do it. But morally, this is just what they want. This is what they want. And we've realized as a society, most societies have realized someone who does that thing perpetually, they're going to keep doing it perpetually. You got to lock them up. You got to make it so that they no longer have the natural ability to steal that thing because they will always steal it. All right? So that's the distinction between a natural ability and a moral ability. When we talk about the ability of fallen man, does he have the natural ability to make the choice to submit to God? He has all the, the requisite faculties. He's got everything that it takes to do it. He could do it. He could bow the knee. His knee does bend. Okay? He can bow the knee to God. He has everything naturally. What's the problem over here? What's the problem with moral, their moral ability? The bondage of the will. Self-seeking. I will be my own God, natural man says. I will serve myself with this thing. Even if it looks just like what those Parkside Christians do, I'm using that same thing to serve myself in some way. So morally, they're always choosing to be their own God. Is that of faith? That which is not of faith is sin. That's what we mean when we say morally unable. Man is unable. He has the faculty. He has the organ to make the choice, but he just doesn't want to. His, his, his desire to, to follow God or anything like that is so outweighed by his desire for self, whatever it is, that this is such a distant second or tenth place. Never going to happen. They will choose this. So that's what I mean when I say unable. Unable to. Natural man cannot choose to submit himself to God. We've read several verses that said that. Natural man is morally unable to submit himself to God because he is dead. And secondly, he follows Satan's lead. He follows Satan's lead, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, I am sure the vast, vast, vast majority of people who are not Christians have not made the decision in their mind maliciously to follow the enemy of God and they're going to go and do evil. I am certain that is not the case. I'm certain of that. But if you think back to how sin entered the world, how did it enter? First you had Satan, Lucifer at the time, who really wanted to be like God. His pride and his rebellion rose up. Boom. He's separated from God. He, he comes down, Adam and Eve are in the garden. And what does he tell Adam and Eve? You can be like God. 
and pride and rebellion grows up in their hearts and boom, they sin. And you and I walk in that same pride and in that same rebellion right now. And so in that sense, in a very real sense, even if it's only to that degree, we are followers of Satan, what a natural man is when he is born, following Satan's lead. That's the path he's set, and that's the path we follow as natural man. Following Satan's lead, who's the, the deceiver, the accuser, the serpent, the father of lies, the one who's been a murderer from the beginning. I am fully confident that the vast majority of people who are not Christians aren't thinking, yeah, he's the serpent, he's the father of lies. They're not even thinking about him. But they're following the path nonetheless. I was following the path nonetheless with no thought for him. When Jesus was speaking to the Jewish religious leaders in John 8, he said to them, the Jewish religious leaders, there were no holier people on earth. He says to them in John 8, you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I'm not saying anything about anyone else that's not true of me in my natural man. I'm not trying to, to ascribe malicious intent to anyone. I'm just saying that that rebellion that natural man is born with started with Satan, and we follow his lead. Natural man is spiritually dead. He follows Satan's lead and is thus a child of wrath, a child of wrath. The end of verse 3 there tells us that. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The wrath of God is the natural result of God's holiness, which is very great, infinitely great, being offended. And an offense against an infinitely great being or aspect is infinite. Our offense becomes infinite. And his wrath is what is due. It's the natural result of his holiness being offended. And we've offended it. And so we're children of wrath and we're born as children of wrath. We stand in rebellion against him as natural man. Romans 1.18 tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Again, Romans 14, whatever is not from faith is sin. A life lived outside of a proper relationship to God just continues to merit more and more and more of God's wrath. Now, I said at the outset this would be dark. Has it been dark adequately so far? I think so. It's dark from my perspective. It doesn't end there. But just think about, pause in the, in the progression of our thought right now and just think about the hopelessness of this situation. Not only is natural man separated from God, separated from, from his love by his sin, he's also unable. He is morally unable to choose to submit to God. That is a hopeless a hopeless situation we find ourselves in. Natural man is a child of wrath, but it doesn't end with the bad news. It doesn't end with the bad news. We're going to continue reading in Ephesians chapter 2. Man is depraved, man is unable, but God. Man is twisted in his understanding and in his will, but God. 
Man's heart is in open rebellion against God. But God. There is no fear of God in the natural man's heart. But God. Natural man is dead. He's a child of wrath and follows Satan's course. But God. These are my two favorite words in the entire Bible. But God. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God, but God, but God. First of all, let's look at his reasons. His reasons for acting. Before we get to his actions, let's look at his reasons. The first one there we see in the beginning of verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. So his first reason is his rich mercy. His first great reason for acting is because of his own rich mercy. Though the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, how does the verse continue? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 9, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's from his own mercy. It wells up from who he is. He is merciful and rich in mercy. And so that's his first reason for acting. The first reason God decided to act on behalf of sinful man is rooted in his own nature. It's his rich mercy. The second reason is his great love. The second half of verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. That's the second reason God acts. It's, again, found in him. There was no higher motivator outside of God himself that spurred him to send his son to save sinners. It's rooted within himself. His highest motivator was his own love. It's rooted in who he is. There's a, there's a fascinating passage in Romans, uh, Deuteronomy. By the way, Deuteronomy is the Romans of the Old Testament, so I make that mistake sometimes. I had a class in Deuteronomy. I initially thought it was going to be rather dull. It was exciting. Deuteronomy is an exciting, exciting book. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Just write that down and listen to this. It addresses the same issue. For you are a people, speaking to Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any, any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. 
Think about that. He loves you. Why? Because he loves you. That's powerful. Not some outside standard. Certainly not something that Israel had accomplished or you and I have accomplished. He loves us because he loves us. That's who he is. That is so exciting to me that it's rooted in him and not in my own intrinsic worth or in my action. He loves me because he loves me. That will never change. God loves us because he loves us. That is who he is. His reasons for acting to save sinners are found within himself. They are his own rich mercy and his own great love. Those are his reasons. Now his actions. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Remember the dark first 30 minutes of this thing? Yeah, remember that. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Made us alive. He made us alive. Verse 1 told us that we were dead. But he made us alive together with Christ. That inability that we had to choose God in our natural state, remember the moral inability, that's been removed. We are now free to choose to submit to God and follow after him instead of the prince of the power of the air. We can follow after God. He made us alive when we were dead and could do nothing about it. He stepped in and gave us life in Christ. A very simple, very simple illustration. It's hard to illustrate this great, massive truth. But bear with me. This one's a little simple. I have allergies, and so I don't always sleep well. Sometimes my sinuses, everything just plugs up so much. And I will, I'll wake up in the middle of the night not having been breathing. And this is how I wake up. <gasps> oh, it's so good to breathe. I didn't even know I wasn't breathing. I was asleep. But it's, that is what has been done to us. He has made us alive. <sighs> and we took our first breath. And all that's sweet. Oh, that's so sweet. I can breathe now. That's what he's done when he made us alive. He made us alive. And he gave us heaven. Point two, he gave us heaven. He raised us up with Christ. This is in verse six. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is a lot in that verse. Can't go to all of it. Suffice it to say, he gave us heaven. No longer are we children of wrath like before. Now, instead, we receive all of the blessings that are to be had in Christ. All the blessings that are to be had in Christ instead of being children of God's wrath. I'll take that deal. That is wonderful. He made us alive. He gave us heaven. He also prepared work for us. He prepared work for us. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. And you can see from the beginning, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. That includes him making us alive from death and giving us good works now to walk in that he prepared for us that we could walk in them. He prepared work for us. Before we knew Christ, we walked in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. But God has redeemed Christians from all that. He's freed us to follow him and to walk in these new good works that he has prepared for us to do, that we could walk in them. Though we were totally depraved and utterly unable to follow after God, not even wanting to, not even wanting to, God has taken action because of his own mercy and his own love. He decided to make us alive, to give us a glorious place in heaven and has prepared his own work for us to do in exchange for the work we used to do. So this is my first attempt. We're going to talk about this next week also, the sovereignty of God and salvation. You can see it's an, it's an enormous subject, and it deals with some very heavy stuff. Thank you for bearing with me in the, in the dark parts, because it's dark. But that just makes the bright parts all the brighter. So what? So what's the application? What does this mean for us? What do we do? In light of these truths... In light of God's activity, in light of where we came from, what he did with us, in light of us being his workmanship, in light of his sovereignty and salvation, what do we do? So what? First of all, we have no room to boast. We have no room to boast. When I think about the fact that I became a believer and others I love have not become believers, what's the difference? Well, I was just a lot smarter. I could see the reasoning there. It made sense. I thought it through a little more. I kind of took life a little more seriously than my buddies. No. It was God's work. Who made us alive? God made us alive. He's the one who made us alive. Just like Jesus standing at the tomb speaking into Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. He comes out. We have zero room to boast. Secondly, God in his grace is magnified all the more. He is lifted up higher all the more because of this. His great work that he has done is incredible. Incredible. It boggles the mind and it should, it should take us into a place where we are worshipful of such a great God. It holds him high. It keeps him lifted up. Thirdly, a third so what? When we study the sovereignty of God and salvation, we can take heart when we pray for the lost. We can take heart when we pray for the lost because he really is in charge. He really can step in and make that person alive too. He is that in control. He is that sovereign. He can do that. If God weren't sovereign, it would be futility to pray for the souls of other people. If he can't do it, why ask him to do it? That's futility. But the fact is, everything we've looked at this morning says that he can. He is able. He's the one who does that work. He's the one who makes that happen. And so when we go to him to pray for our dear ones who don't know him, he has the ability to make that happen. And so it encourages our prayer. I take heart in that. It doesn't have to be a cooperation. And, and yeah, God, do your part, but I really hope this person cooperates. I really... God really is sovereign in salvation. And when we pray to him, we are talking to the right person. 
So I'm encouraged to, to pray for the lost. People I love who don't, who don't know the Lord. Now maybe, maybe this is all new to you. Probably many of you, this is new to you. And there may be some here who uh, were really wondering where the, this dark message was going because it was pretty murky in the beginning, pretty muddy. Maybe you've never heard about salvation in Christ. Maybe, maybe no one's ever told you you're born dead in your sins. I, I pray this morning that God would work in your heart and make you alive, just like Jesus did with Lazarus. Come out. Come out. Come to life. Be made alive. Come to life right now. I pray that God would do that with you. If, if, you, if you question this, if you wonder what I'm talking about, if you, uh, if you have, have concerns, if you want to hear more about what new life is, what we're talking about, what salvation is, if you want to hear more about this, come and talk to me. I'll be up front. I remember when I first heard, I didn't understand a whole lot, but what I knew was there was a tugging at my heart. There was something drawing me to pursue it, to seek it. And that was God working in me. He was drawing me to himself. He did that gracious work in me, and I pray he'll do the same in you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your great, great work in salvation, what you have accomplished in saving sinners. Lord, of all of the so what's, maybe the highest one is that it draws us into such a great worship that we look at God who is good and had no no cause, no reason outside of himself, had no obligation to make it possible for us to be reconciled to yourself. You did it because because of your mercy and because of your love. You did it because of things rooted in you, and so all the more we should worship you, and so we do. Lord, I pray that you would take these truths, take these passages, these things we wrote down, that you would begin to work in our hearts, that you would begin to draw us into a higher view maybe than we had before of, of salvation, a high, certainly a higher view of you. You can never have too high a view of you. And so, Lord, I pray that you do your work this morning. Thank you for our time. Thank you for your word that teaches us truth. Thank you for your spirit you've given us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.